We want to take our Bibles this morning. Let's turn to Psalm 91. And we've been in a series of messages in the Psalms and been asking you to read um, seven Psalms during the week. And then uh, on Sunday, I, came, I come and preach on one of them. And today it's Psalm 91. You know, as we <clears throat> are reading through these Psalms and preaching through the Psalms, they're very encouraging. These are encouraging words from the Lord. And yet, it's not enough just to be encouraging. I mean, it's really not. What my goal is, is not just to be encouraging this morning, but to also give you a better picture of God, to help you to get to know God and the ways of God better. Because an encouraging word is good for a day or two, but if I can help you to understand God and how he works in our lives a little bit better, it could last for a lifetime. And so in Psalm 91, we find four of the favorite, my favorite verses in all the Bible, verses 1 through 4. And yet the next verses, 5 through 13, are some of the most hard to understand in all the Bible. Let me give you a little story. I know that everybody here could tell me a story. You could share something with me today. Uh, you've been through, I don't know, an earthquake out in California. You've been through a tornado in Georgia, or you've lived here in Florida, and you've been, lived through hurricanes, all kinds of disaster in your life. <clears throat> My first such disaster that I can remember came in college when I was a student at Cold Falls College. It would be 40 years ago this year that um, the flood came and killed 39 people on that. So if you can just imagine this, this campus, beautiful little campus in the foothills of Georgia. And right up from that is, uh, in back of the campus, is a creek. And the creek meanders around and back of the dorms in the music building, and then heads up a little bit past some residential areas on down through a trailer park that is um, part of the school, and finally hits the end of the land and a, and a bridge. Well, one night, <clears throat> In November, it was raining very, very hard, and we were just, didn't have anything to do, basically, late at night. And so I can remember even pulling up our cars and uh, putting them into the windows of the gymnasium, and we went in there and played basketball in the dark. And so we were just having kind of a good time. Went to sleep that night. At 2 o'clock in the morning, somebody was running down the hall, yelling and screaming to get out. Well, when I woke up, I heard the roar right outside of my window. <clears throat> my first thought was, since I'm in Georgia, been through a couple of tornadoes down the road from me before, and I thought, tornado, get down to safe ground. Big mistake if I'd have done that. I ran out in the hallway, and they said the dam had burst, and uh, the, the dorm was flooding. Well, if you look in the back of the dorm, you'll find, again, the creek meandering around. That creek ends up at a falls, the highest falls east of the Mississippi. It's higher than Niagara even though not, not nearly as wide. Up from that was a 40-acre lake that was <clears throat> built with an earthen dam many, many years before. That dam broke that night, and 40 acres of water came rushing down the falls, extremely high falls, came down to the creek, and <clears throat> boulders, I would say, you know, the size, well, they're bigger than me, uh, they were, that's pretty big, they were as big probably as the opening of these doors right here, you know, pretty close to it, came down, broke off. That's how powerful that, that, um, that water was. It came across that bridge, 
flooded over into the dorm area, Forest Hall, where I was a student and living. It crashed through the windows below hand, I mean below on the lower floor. If I had not done that, then it would collapse the rest of the dorm. But those, those windows were enough to give it away, give it, give it, give it some uh, way to, uh, to, to have the force there hitting the building. Three people died in that dorm that night. You go around the, the, uh, the falls and you'll have five houses on what they call residence row. Two of my teachers lived on that row and a couple other teachers as well. All those houses completely gone, most of the people killed. It went around to a trailer, that trailer park we call Trailerville, and killed many of the people, destroyed all those homes until it hit the bridge and all that debris just lined up right there at that, stopped at that bridge and that bridge held it. <clears throat> Back up a little ways to the dorm. Three people out of the 39 that were killed that night and in just a few minutes lived in that dorm. I lived in that dorm, just a floor or so, um, I think a floor above that. And so the water came through, crashed through the window, and there was one gentleman that was, many of them were saved. In fact, there were about probably 15 living in that low floor uh, at the time, and uh, only three of them passed that night. Some of them were gone home for the weekend. But a fellow by the name of Chuck, living in that first room, tells a story of the water coming, crashing through the window and breaking it and waking him up. And he looked up and saw the door was shut. And the next morning, they tried to get the door open. They had to use crowbars and hammers, so it was really shut by the water. He said, I don't know how I got through the door. I don't know how I got in the hallway, but I found myself swimming, and I knew to go to the left. I went to the left. Meanwhile, a couple of guys from the upper floor that knew what was going on, were awake at the time, came rushing down to try to save people on the low floor. Once they got to the stairwell, they found nothing but muddy water there, and they didn't know what to do. And suddenly a hand stuck up from that muddy water. They grabbed it, and it was Chuck Dowdle, and they pulled him up to safety. Chuck was saved that night. Three others didn't make it out of the dorm. 39 total lost their lives. And as far as I know, all of them were believers in Christ. And so the question comes up, as it does in this passage, I thought if you followed the Lord, things are going to work out. In fact, look with me in verse 9. It says, or verse 10, no evil will befall you if you follow the Lord. No will, no will, uh, nor will any plague come near your tent. Verse 12, then they will bear you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Well, you read these verses and you say, how, how can they mean that? How can they mean that nothing is going to happen to you? Man, once you get saved, everything's going to be like smooth waters. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be great. You're never going to have financial problems. You're never going to have problems in school. And once you raise your kids to be 18 years old, you'll never have another problem with them again. Man, it's just going to be great. Why don't you come and get saved today? You've heard those kind of things before. Everything's going to work out great. But, but does that really mesh with the rest of the Bible and, and with real life? So let's find out what this passage really teaches. In fact, let me just give it to you in a nutshell. This psalm is about how to have peace and security amidst a world of turmoil. And I would say the message to it is this. If we are living in Christ and following him, nothing outside of his design for our life will ever hurt us. And so what do these, do these verses mean to us today? 
four things, the promise, the premise, the presence, and then those who are protected. First four verses, we see the promise. Again, great verses here. I could spend the rest of the sermon right here. He who dwells in the shelter. This word dwell means to be a dweller. It means to live somewhere. In other words, this is your home. This is where you belong. This is what you embrace. It's the same word we have in John chapter 15 where Jesus said, abide in me and my word abide in you. Same word. It means to live in, to remain in. He says, in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The word abide here, different in Hebrew than it is in Greek in the New Testament, and it means a place of um, temporary safety. It means a, a secret place, somewhere you go to get along with God. It's kind of the same thing we see in the rest of the Psalms where it's, David says, I'm, I want to go to the sanctuary. I want to be in the presence of God. That's what he's talking about. Those who are in the presence of the Lord and live in his presence. He says, I will say, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Notice there's two things here that you're going to be delivered from. Spiritual warfare, the snare of the fowler. We talk about, we see it in verse 8 when it talks about the wicked. Verse 10 when it talks about evil. There's spiritual warfare that comes against us behind the scenes and God says, look, I'm going to protect you from that. Then he says the pestilence. Now that comes from the outside, plagues from the outside, but it affects your inside. And probably speaking here in the Old Testament, it really is talking about something physical. But we can apply it in the New Testament principles to not just the physical, but the emotional. All the, the Psalms so, so much talk about the anger that we feel, the bitterness, the depression, the discouragement, the envy that we've talked about. He says, all these things, he says, God, God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to rescue you from that. In fact, look, look how he describes God. He says in verse uh, 1, he talks about the most high, the, the Hebrew word Elion, his passion. He loves us. He's a God of love. Then he says, Shaddai, the almighty, the one who provides. Jehovah Lord, Jehovah is, a, is the name for God that's the covenant God. And that's what the Jewish people here are talking about in, in Psalm 91. We don't know who wrote this psalm. We just know that they were in a lot of trouble and probably they were looking at an imminent attack from an enemy. And he was saying, in the end, everything's going to be all right. We can, if we trust God, God will deliver. So what is he, what is he looking at? He says, a pestilence, a snare of the fowler. He says, Jehovah, the Lord, the covenant promise. He says, those who are dwellers. This is a promise for dwellers. In the Old Testament, that are, that's Jews, Jewish people who are following the Lord. This is a promise for those who are abiding in the Lord, dwellers in the Lord. Well, we look at this, and what a, what a verse in verse 4. All through the Bible, God talks about the feathers and the shade and the shadow and the protection of wings. He says in verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Man, you can take those to the bank, can't you? Isn't that great? What are the promise of God that we are abiding in him, we're dwellers in him, nothing outside his design for our life can hurt us. But then we read the next few verses, and suddenly even the thought of a design or a purpose escapes us. Because we look at the premise of his sovereignty. Now, when I talk about the sovereignty of God, the Bible refers to the sovereignty of God and the fact that God rules. He, he's over things. And so look at the, the premise that he looks at. 
and we ask ourselves the question, what does this passage mean? Let me read it to you, and I'll just make a couple of comments. Verse 5, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. He says, all day long, God's going to protect you. You don't have to be afraid of that. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. He's talking about a, a, a physical battle here. But, you, but it will not approach you. You will, verse 8, you will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High God, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near you and your tent. They will bear you up, verse 12, just skipping down a verse. We'll come back to verse 11 in just a moment. They will bear you up in their hands, and you will not strike your foot against a stone. He says, you're not even going to stumble. You're not even going to make a bad decision if you follow the Lord. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, and the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Even the animals, the most poisonous, the most dangerous animals in the world will not harm you. Now, you look at this passage, and immediately... I, I have three problems with it, you know, and you do too. Number one, we want it to be true, don't we? Don't we want that to be true? I mean, come on. We want to receive Christ in our life and everything runs smooth. I and mean, we do want that. And that causes me to pause here because anytime I want something real bad, I know to look at it. I, I remember when I was younger looking at even things like heaven and the rapture of the church and uh, the security of the believer because I wanted to believe those things. Those are good things. And so I needed to research them because just because I want them to be true does not mean they're true. Secondly, it bothers, it should bother us because it does not really mesh and coincide with the rest of the Bible and certainly not real life. I mean, even in the Bible, you say, well, that's not working out in my life. Look in the Bible. Look at the book of, of Job. Job was a man who had it made. He had everything. Then Satan appears to Job and says, or, or to God and says, look, you've got a servant by the name of Job, and he's just serving you because it's a good thing. You know, you're blessing his life. You take away his blessing, and he'll, he'll run from you. He'll curse God and die. And God, God said, well, look, you just can't kill him, but you can take away his blessing. And so he goes through all kinds of things, and three friends come to him and said, you know, look, it must be that there's, there's, there's sin in your life. There must be something wrong with your life. Because, I mean, after all, if you're following the Lord, these things, they've read Psalm 91. Right here in, in the Bible, it says these things won't happen to you. They're happening to you. That means God is not part of it. And so it doesn't bear with the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, look at the New Testament. Paul went through all kinds of stuff. Read about it in Philippians chapter 3. He followed the Lord and Jesus. I mean, my goodness. How can anyone be more perfect than Jesus? Jesus was perfect in every way. He followed the Father in every way, and he died on a cross. A cruel death. And what about your life? You can say, look, you know, I thought everything would be great and smooth, and I'm going through all these trials in my life. Even, and the third thing is this. I, I said, number one, I want it to be true. Number two, the rest of the Old Testament does, does not bear witness to this. And one, one, one pastor I got this from, Satan wants, it, wants you to see it this way. Isn't that amazing? When I looked at that, I thought, man, he's right. Because look at Luke chapter 4, verse 11. 
on their hands, Satan says, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting this verse, verse 12, in, in the New Testament. Who's he quoting it to? Jesus. He says, Jesus, look, according to Psalm 91, you're not even going to trip up. You're not even going to do, nothing's going to hurt you. In fact, you can, he tempted him in three different ways, quoting scripture at every turn. One of the few places in the Bible Satan ever quotes the Bible. And he misquotes it because he wants us to believe that if we follow Jesus Christ, everything's going to be smooth in our life. And we will never have to face evil in our life. Why does he want us to believe that? Well, number one, you've got two choices. Number one, okay, this, I, I'm going to read verses 5 through 13 in that way. I'm going to believe it like Satan wants me to believe it. And that's really not coming true in my life. That means, Satan says, you, and this is what he was telling Jesus, you can't trust your father. This is what he says, and this is what's happening to you. Man, you're starving to death in the wilderness, and you're dying of thirst. What do you think's going on there? And so either you can't trust God, or number two, you're not right with God, and therefore you're going to feel guilty. On the one hand, you say, well, what's the, what's the use in going to church? Man, I just drop out. People, we see that all the time. People are not going to church. Why? Well, I, I, I get something. Do you get anything out? Well, yeah, I get something out of it. But, but then this happened in my life. And if, if this happened in my life and God really loved me, this would not happen in my life. Or somebody might feel so, yeah, every time I go to church, I just feel guilty. Well, why? Well, things aren't working out in my life. If things were work, working out in my life, then I would know I was right with God. But since things aren't working out like I want them to, I must not be right. Satan wants you to believe this. So what does it mean? What does it mean to us? I want you to notice. Uh, in fact, let me just tell you a story. I told you the story a little bit of Job. Let me tell you the story of a man by the name of Joseph that you'll find back in the first book of the Bible, around chapter 37. He is the grandson of Abraham. Many of you have heard of him before. Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith, as well as really our faith as well, and that's where it all started. And God made this covenant with Abraham, and this is the Jehovah God covenant, that he was going to bless Israel and bless those who blessed him, and as long as they followed the Lord and had this big covenant. Well, his grandson, uh, by the name of Joseph, had a lot of older brothers, and Joseph was the favorite to his dad. Parents, that's, that's not a good thing. Don't, don't play favorites. I mean, you know not to do that. But even if you do and you, you think that's a good thing, the rest of your siblings are going to hate them. Okay? And so that's what happened here in the Old Testament. Joseph was the favored one, and his older brothers just hated him. And Joseph is looked upon as somebody that was so godly all of his life. But if you were to look at it, really dissect his life just a little bit, you would see that really he was arrogant. He, he was kind of full of himself a little bit. In fact, he had this dream that one day his brothers were going to bow down to him and ask him for things. He's going to rule over his brothers. And so immediately he went and told them the story. Okay? And that made him mad. So what did they do? They threw him in the bottom of the well and they thought, well, that's not good enough. So they pulled him out, sold him into slavery in Egypt. Well, he went to Egypt, 17 years old. A few years later, uh, he was serving in a place called the Potiphar's House. Potiphar's house. And he was one of the big rulers of Egypt, not the ruler, one of the big guys. And uh, his wife was attracted to Joseph and propositioned him. Well, he turned her down. 
She got mad, as people do sometimes. You know, they get, you know, they get their feelings hurt. They're going to get mad and make up a story, and that's what she did. She made up a story, and she said, this guy tried to attack me. Man, you brought this Hebrew guy in the house, and he tried to attack me. So he had him, he had him placed in prison. And Joseph lived there for years until he interpreted some dreams, and the dream was uh, that there was going to be plenty in the world for seven years. And then after the plenty, there were going to be seven years of famine. And so they had to save those first seven years in order to prepare for the last seven years. Well, Pharaoh, was the king of Egypt, was so impressed that he made Joseph second in charge, second man in charge. And so he had really charge over all of Egypt. And he was dispersing food as people came to him from all over the world during those last seven years. Well, his brothers had to come to him, not recognizing who he was, been years, 13 years later, and they bowed down to him and said, look, we need some food. And he played with them and toyed with them a little bit until he revealed to them who he was, and they were scared to death. And here's what he said, great verse in the Bible. It says, as for you, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it against evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What was he doing? Joseph was seeing the end in mind. Psalm 91, he was saying, look, you've got to look at the big picture. And yeah, if we go into a battle, there's going to be some of you that may lose your life. But God is going to win in the end of the battle if we follow him. And any battle, any war, that's going to happen. But he says, if we follow him, look at the big picture. It's that butterfly effect that you hear about, that, that people talk about. And, and, you know, somebody says, well, you know, a, a butterfly, if he flaps in a certain way, even in Africa, it affects the wind current eventually all the way over to America. Well, I don't, I don't know for sure about that, but I do know this. Everything that happens to your life affects people around you. You say, oh, not me, I'm, I'm not much. I mean, I don't have that important of a job. I just make, I make pretty good money, but it's not that big of a deal. Oh, no, 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 no. Everything affects, even if it's your family, your coworkers. And then whatever is affecting them, positive or negatively, or just maybe just a little bit, maybe a lot, affects others. You affect your children. Your children affect those at school. The, the children at school affect their parents. Their parents affect the people at work. Everything that's going on in your life is like a butterfly effect. It's a rippling effect all throughout the world. That's why God is doing things in our life in order to bring about something great and wonderful like he did in the life of Joseph. If it wasn't for the trials that Joseph went through, he would have never been the man of God God wanted him to be. And certainly his whole family would have starved. But his family had no idea where he was. In fact, they thought he was dead. Or at least his father thought he was dead. Had no idea where he was, what he was doing. But God was working everything for good. Here's what Paul said, Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his design, his purpose in life. Now, there's some things that happen to you that are not good. Don't say everything's good. Everything's not good. The hurricane that came through here a few years ago, it wasn't good. But 
things bad in our life become good for as God works them together. And some of that is just plain maturity. As a parent, you know as you raise your children up, they have responsibilities. Suppose, for example, um, a mom tells her son, he says, I want you, now it's time, it's Saturday afternoon, you need to go out and mow the lawn. I don't want to mow the lawn. Well, you know that's your responsibility to mow the lawn. It's hot outside, mom. Do you want to kill me or something? It's, uh, it's 90 degrees outside, 95 degrees. It's humid. I'm going to have a stroke if I go out there, a heart attack. Something's going to happen to me. Nothing's going to happen to you. Get out there. No, I want to play video games. No, you need to go out and mow the lawn. So the argument goes back and forth. Finally, he goes out. He gets the lawnmower out. He cranks it up. You know, he's just mad. He's saying how much he hates his mom and hates his mom. He puts his earphones on and starts mowing the lawn. Well, about 30 minutes later, mom hears some thunder. And then lightning nearly strikes the house. Now, you know, you live in Florida. You know about lightning, right? Somebody says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you go to, you, I lived in Georgia for years. You know, lightning struck, and I mean, lightning was up there. He said, well, there may be heat lightning. I don't know what that is. I have no idea. We've got to keep an eye on that. First time I moved to Florida, when I first moved to Florida, my kids were playing out on the Little League ball field over here at the Methodist Church, and lightning came, it was struck, and immediately it's like ants running everywhere. Lightning struck. Lightning was near. Well, here's a mom. All of a sudden she thinks, oh, my. He's not coming in. He's got the earphones on. She rushes out, grabs him, throws the earphones off, rushes him back into the house with lightning popping everywhere. They get back into the house, and the son looks at the mom and says, Look, you're sending me mixed message, Mom. <laughs> on the one hand, you send me out to mow the lawn to die out on the lawn, and then you save my life from lightning. I don't understand this. You need to get your head on straight. You need to make up your mind what's going No, no. You see, there was a different, there was a design to the mowing of the lawn. Not just getting the, the lawn mowed, but teaching her son responsibility. Because you cannot teach, you, you cannot bring up a child of respon that's responsible unless you teach them responsibility. There was a design in that. But her design was not for her son to get struck by lightning. At least not that mom, Okay. And, and she, in my illustration, you may have different ideas. Uh, but uh, that was not her design. God has a design for our life to teach us responsibility, to grow us up in the Lord. But there's just some things that are, are not part of that at all. They're going to harm us and not help us. And he's guarding us every step of the way. You say, yeah, but I like things smooth. You ever been rock climbing? Ever been? You know, you, you climb up and you grab the rock. Well, I haven't been either. But, <clears throat> hey, have you ever been on one of those rock climbing things at, at the malls or whatever, you know, when you got the plastic things and you're going up with a ro rope on you? If I do that this week, that'll be the first time I've ever done that. But I've seen people do it. Now, what would happen? I mean, you know, uh, you know maybe an 8-year-old's going up there and they're having a great time doing this. What happens if there's no plastic stuff on there? What happens if a real rock climber got up to a smooth rock? Where would he go? How would he climb the rock? In fact, if your, your kids did this, they'd be pushing away from the wall all the time. Because the bumps are what you climb on. There are going to be bumps in life, but they are what we climb on.
I've got to finish up this message real quickly. You've got to listen a lot faster. I want you to look in verse 11 because even though I'm going to hit it quick, it's very important. How far will God go to put this kind of meaning in your life? Look at the presence of the supernatural because we all long for that. He says, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. There are angels everywhere. There are angels in the Garden of Eden, angels when the Ten Commandments were given, when Scripture was written, when Jesus was at the birth of the announcement of Jesus, in the wilderness with Jesus. At the cross of Jesus there were angels, and of course the resurrection, they said, He is not here, He is risen. All throughout the Bible, 300 times angels are mentioned. The Bible says in the book of Revelation there are billions of angels, angels all around. Hebrews 12, 1 tells us that faith is believing the conviction of things not seen, you cannot see. And we talk about demonic forces. When Satan fell from heaven, one-third of the angels fell with him and became demons. But if there's one-third that fell, there's two-thirds that are left. Twice as many angels as there are demons. And they're here even among us today. Something that you can't see. They, they, they go to work with you. They go to church with you. Now, if you stay home from church, they're coming. And so if you stay home, you know, they're not there. They're here. But anyway, <laughs> angels are there to help you. I love the story that Billy Graham tells in uh, his book, Angels, God's Secret Agents. Years ago, he wrote a book. And uh, Billy Graham, of course, greatest evangelist, I think, that's probably ever lived as far as actually leading people, more people to the Lord than maybe anyone else. He tells a story about John Patton and how John Patton was a missionary among a new tribe, a brand new place that had never heard the gospel before. And he goes into this place, and a story goes, as he tells it, they were in the hut one night, they were surrounded by the tribe, and they were going to be burnt out of their, villa, their, their home and killed. And so they got in a corner and prayed, and the next morning nobody was there. Well, to finish the story, about a year later he was able to lead the chief of this tribe to the Lord. And he asked him, he said, you know, you were there and you're ready to burn down my house and, and I thought you were going to kill us. Why didn't you do it? And he said, well, we couldn't get to you because of all the soldiers around you. He says, nobody around me. He says, no, there are men with armor on them. We couldn't get to you. Angels visibly protecting someone. Now, you can believe the story or you're not, but, you know, it's in the book and, you know, John Patton tells it. It's a supernatural thing. We long for those supernatural things to happen in our life. But who gets this kind of protection, as I close? Who gets this kind of protection? The dwellers. Those who abide and dwell in God's presence. Three things are going to happen. This, aren't these three things that you want? Look in verse 14. Because he has loved me, because you've loved him. You placed him first in your life. He's the first love of your life. Therefore, I will deliver him, he says. Don't you want to be delivered? You want to be delivered from your addictions. You want to be delivered from your despair, your discouragement, your depression, your circumstances. All of us want to be delivered. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Old Testament-wise, you're part of the covenant. New Testament, you know him by knowing Jesus Christ and all that the name of Jesus Christ means. Secondly, he will call upon me and I will answer him. Don't you want answers to prayer? 
You know, the greatest thing to me about answers to prayer is not so much getting what I want, but I know when God answers my prayer, he loves me. It's just an affirmation that he's there and he's, he's part of my life and he wants to be an integral uh, impact part of my life. He says, I'll be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Thirdly, with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Don't you want to be satisfied with life? Isn't that our quest? Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what it's all about? I just want to be happy. I, I want to be fulfilled. That's what he's saying. Not so much happy, but fulfilled and satisfied with life. And he says, I'm going to offer this to you. How are you going to get, get it? Well, you're going to get it through Christ. Christ is our great example. He lived a perfect life, suffered with a purpose. Six hours on the cross, no longer than he was, than was needed. And he fulfilled his purpose. And he's, he's looked upon as the bird, places in the Bible, as the one with feathers, giving us shade, protecting us in that salvation experience. You know, when a hen or a bird protects its young, the bird gets wet in the rain. Protects them from the fire, the bird gets burned. Story is told of a barn burning down, and um, supposed to be a true story, and I can see how it would happen. The barn burned down, and there was a hen on the ground, and it was burned black to a crisp. And when they picked it up, it, rigor mortis had already set in, so it was very stiff, and they heard some chirping. And these little, pretty little white chicks came out from underneath the hen, the chicken. Point being, she was willing to give her life as a substitute for those little baby chicks. That's what Christ has done for us. He's given his life as a substitute for us. He got wet. He got burned. He got crucified on the cross and took our sin that we might know him and be part of the new covenant that's in Jesus Christ. I love this verse. This is one of my life verses. I quote it a lot to myself. I'll, I'll give it to you in this version of the Bible. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro. Get the picture there. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Think about that. God's looking throughout this entire church, this church body right now, and he's searching to find someone to support, to find someone to strongly support. Who? The dwellers, the people whose heart is completely his. So the question this morning I have for you, is your heart completely his? Let's bow in prayer. In the quietness of this time that we have before the Lord, is your heart completely his? If it's not, it can be. You can be one of those that God finds and strongly supports throughout your entire life. A life-changing time by giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.